Well, good morning, faith family. As you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that's page 970 in your pew Bible. Page 970 in your pew Bible. I pray that you'd leave that open. But as you're turning there, I want to share with you a story from uh, Corey Timboom's book, The Tramp for the Lord. Uh, in it, she recounts the story of an old uh, Russian woman that she met during the Cold War. And this Russian woman was persecuted for being a Christian. And so Corey meets her uh, at her home where she is reclining on a uh, sofa and she's propped up underneath pillows. Her body is bent and twisted uh, from her dreaded disease. And with her is her aged husband who spends all of his days and all of his time caring for her since she could not move off the sofa. The only part of her body that she could actually control was her right hand. And so with the index finger of that hand, she glorified God by typing on a vintage typewriter beside her. Her husband would prop her up into a sitting position, and then all day and all night, she would type. She translated Christian books. She translated the Bible uh, from into Russian, right, using just one finger, peck, peck, peck. Books of the Bible, Billy Graham's biography, Corey Tim Boom's biography. Not only does she translate books, her husband said, but she also prays for these people the entire time that she's typing. Because sometimes it takes her a long time to hit a key. A long time to load the paper, but the entire time she is praying for the people in which the books were written about. So Corey Timboom looks at her and says, in her own heart, I looked at her wasted form, her head pulled down, her feet curled under her body, and Corey Timboom thought, Lord, why don't you heal her? And her husband, sensing Corey's anguish, gave the answer. God has a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is watched by the police. But because she has been sick for so long, no one has ever looked in on her. They leave us alone. And she is the only one in the city who can type quietly enough, undetected by the police. But one day, Corey Timboom receives a, le a letter from that lady's husband. She had gone to be with the Lord. But she sat up till midnight, right, typing with just that one finger to the glory of God. Would you have thought that her disease could be a gift from God? Has it ever occurred to you that the thing that you want most removed from your life might be the very thing God uses in the greatest way for his glory? Certainly the case of the Apostle Paul, and what we heard from Aaron, is this. Sermon in a nutshell. Every believer should glory in their weakness far more than their strength. Every believer should glory in their weakness far more than their strength. It is in our weakness that Christ is most clearly revealed. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, we get the reason. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. Grace and power go together. Grace sufficient, power made perfect in weakness. 
And so Paul says, therefore, in light of that, the therefore matters, right? I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, the power of Christ may rest upon me. Those are familiar verses. And to take those verses off of the kitchen calendar, they make beautiful kitchen calendars with these little verses on them. We're going to put this verse back in its original context. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 11 through 12 and see that Paul gives us four reasons that we should glory in our weakness. Four reasons we should glory in our weaknesses. First, glory in your weakness to defend the church from false teachers. Glory in your weakness to defend the church from false teachers. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 15, we heard how passionate Paul was by the rate and the kind of the aggression that Aaron had in her tone. I was thinking about who could read scripture this week. I'm going to the directory in my mind, I'm thinking, who has that tone, right? Aaron's back in town. Nice. I think I have to even practice this, right? You know, and we, we heard that in passion section. Actually, commentators have noted that this is Paul's most passionate personal section in all of his writings. For two chapters, he lets you in on his life. And what brings out his, his fervor, his zeal, this ire, is that this church that he founded is being twisted against him, right? Paul feels this jealousy for them. Right, 11, verse 2 says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He has labored for this church. He suffered for this church. Read Acts 18 this afternoon. See how he planted this church in suffering. He founded it. And now, for the good of the church that he loves, and for the good of them staying loyal to Christ, he is willing to go to war. He's willing to get in battle. Right? And so he says in verse 12 of chapter 11, what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claims of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. No, these men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Now, if you're here as a Christian, not a Christian, you might look at this chapter and go, this just sounds like the world. I mean, I can turn on MSNBC or Fox News. If I just want to hear arguments, it, it's there. How is this not like a power struggle between two egos contesting with one another? We have to understand this is a power struggle over a faithful gospel ministry in the church. It's a struggle worth having. Faith in the local church is worth a fight. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and actually our church today struggles and fights and is willing to fight even for you if you are here as a non-Christian. We struggle for your sake. Now, we should not be struggling about carpet color or COVID regulations. If you see us fighting about those things, it's just another case in point that we need a Savior too. Okay? But if you see us fighting, there are some fights worth having. Paul says in verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4, For if someone comes in and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, and you're putting up with that readily enough, that's worth fighting for. 
What Paul is saying is that as a Christian church, we are charged by God. We've been entrusted with the gospel. And so if there are divisions in our church, if there is doubt in our church over if the Bible is true, over if Jesus Christ is the Savior of mankind, the only way to God, right, and if salvation is by grace alone and faith alone, then we want to have those fights because we want you to know this God. We want to make sure that this church leaves a gospel witness for you to be able to hear. That's what's going on. But here's the tough part. I've been in some fights in my life. And when I get attacked, here's the tough part. How do you defend what you are doing without using the same rhetoric as your opponent and only enforcing or playing the same guide and abusing power as well? That's a tough thing. Someone is questioning your authority because they want authority. How do you defend your authority without playing by the same rules and only encouraging people to think that, yeah, it's just a big issue of authority? Well, Paul is now going to show us how he does this. He is going to, number two, glory in your weakness to distinguish yourself from the world. Point number two, glory in your weakness to distinguish yourself from the world. Verses 16 through 29, that's what Paul is doing. The way that he goes about glorying in his weakness is going to distinguish him from how the world does it. Even in his boasting, which you heard Aaron say, he is only mocking their boasting. He's doing it in a way to actually make fun of them. All right, you want me to list my personal history? As one famous cowboy said, I'm your huckleberry. Let's go for it, right? I'll give you my personal history. Let me tell you about what I have done. And then he goes on to list everything that would actually be a shame to the super apostles. You, you want to go to Clinton's Oak? Great. But now I'm going to argue in a way that only would be things that you would be embarrassed about. Think about it this way, faith family. Who in their resume would prominently list all the jail time they've done? Three times! Been there! Right? That's what Paul says in verse 23, right? 1123. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. Right? I've been beaten countless times, left for dead. It becomes part of what he glories in. Go down now to verse 30, 31. Paul says, The God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Artus, uh, Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. During this time, it was a, a badge of honor to be the first soldier to be let down in a basket over the wall to invade a city and to plunder it. That was like, yeah, I got to go first. I got to kick the door down. That was me. Paul says, that's not, that's not me. I'm going to glory in that I actually had to get let down out of a basket out of the city. I didn't kick any doors down. I, I had to run. I had to flee. Now, he's doing this because he isn't thinking in a worldly fashion. He's not trying to get a job. He's not trying to take a dime of their money. He even says in verse 7, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? You want to be mad at me because I didn't actually charge you to preach the gospel? Like, 
If you're that good of a spender, right? I mean, someone who can just twist words to make them think that it's a blessing to pay you to hear the message. Paul says, hey guys, I didn't even charge you, right? All of this, all of his weakness that he didn't charge, that he was in prison, that he had to be let out of a basket out of a city, all is so that he could exalt the strength of Christ. He boasts of his weakness to exalt the strength of Christ. It lays out a very different version of what Christianity is when we see it on today. Christianity of ease, health, safety, prosperity, immediate personal happiness, immediate personal success. Faith family, just consider it like this. If you actually got all that you prayed for, ease, health, happiness, safety, security, no one's ever sick, everyone always gets healed, your immediate success, your, if you got all of that, guess what? It'd be very hard to tell if you are in the Christian faith for God and for the good of others or if you are in it for yourself. Right? I mean, if God gave you everything you wanted, people go, oh, of course you would worship that God. I mean, he's giving you ease, happiness, peace, no problems, health, wealth, and prosperity. But because we have weakness, church, because we go through sufferings like the Apostle Paul, it shows the world that we think Christ is precious, that eternity matters. We distinguish ourselves from the world. These false teachers were using people to serve themselves. Look at verses 19 through 20. These false teachers were using people to serve themselves. Chapter 11, verse 19. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. Sarcasm. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, I was too weak to do that. The Apostle Paul begins to list all the things that he went through to serve them. Do you see the difference between Paul and these false Christians? It's a difference that shouldn't just be for Paul and for pastors. It's a difference that should be for all Christians. Should other people be more important to you than you are to yourself? Should other people be more important to you than you are to yourself? Is it okay with you if sometimes God allows you to suffer for the good of others? Marriage, just think about that. Right? Is it okay with you that sometimes God would let you to suffer, husbands, for the good of your spouse? Loving others is hard and inconvenient, but it's the model of Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 says that he suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow. And so we follow Christ. So what would it mean if we were to actually follow him and not inconvenience ourselves for the good of others? It would take away who we are really following. So faith family, when was the last time that you inconvenienced yourself for the good of somebody else? Do you use others to serve yourself or do you use yourself to serve others? God made us to love others more than ourselves. And so the Apostle Paul is here showing what he went through to distinguish himself from the world to show us how to love others more than ourselves. Third, glory in your weakness to distance yourself from your strength. Glory in your weakness to distance yourself from your strength. That's chapter 11, verse 30 through chapter 12, verse 8. Paul only boasted about his weakness. 
2 Corinthians 11.30 says, If I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. Okay, so he's wanting to just boast only in the stuff that's going to show his weakness. And even when he talks about a vision, that's chapter 12, 1 through 6, he's going to share with us a vision. He only does it in a way that is completely different than how his opponents were doing it. Notice his humility in verses 1 through 6. He tells us the reason in verse 1. If I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So what does he think about this boasting of a vision? Is it profitable for Paul? He says, there's nothing to be gained by it. That's what, that's what he thinks about it. Nothing of real value here, okay? And then he goes on talking about it in verse 2, in the third person. I know a man in Christ. Why doesn't he just come out and say, I did this? I had this vision. I was caught up into the third heaven. It's his way of being humble by not talking about himself. He isn't willing to draw attention to himself. You can even see that in the sense that he speaks in the passive voice. Look at verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up. Is Paul doing the catching up? If you are caught up, who's doing it? Somebody else. Paul was acted on. He wants God to get all the glory. I didn't do this prayer, offer the right sacrifice, be in the right spirit for God to bring me to heaven. No, God just caught me up. Right? I didn't do this. And he wants God to get the glory. It also is seen here, not only in the person he talks about, the third person, not only in the passive voice. I think there's even some humility here in how much time has passed. Before we ever hear about this, Paul says 14 years passed. Faith family, if I had a vision like this, do you think the next sermon would be about it? Think I could keep a mouth shut about that vision to think 14 years passed and I haven't talked about it. You know what I have found in my personal experience is this, that those who want to talk about their personal spiritual experiences often want to be thought more highly of. God did this with me. I met God here. God did this. God did that. I was there. I was this. Pat and I experienced that opposition from someone at one time in our ministry where he thought the spirit had left FCBC and that we needed fresh wind and fresh fire and that we needed to have more spiritual encounters with the Holy Spirit. This person left our church, went looking to every church in the area. I guess he didn't find any other churches of the spirit either. And would you be surprised that now this person is their own pastor at their own home church? I think it could be a warning, faith family, that when someone talks about all of their experiences, they may just want to have authority. But notice that Paul does not refer to his spiritual experience as any gauge of his maturity, as any gauge of his authority. Paul does not go around giving seminars on how to get caught up in the third heaven. Trust me, there would be people that would want to go and listen how you could have your third heaven experience. He does not make it mandatory for any pastor. In order to be a good pastor, you must have this spiritual experience. That's not it. Paul says in verse 6 what? Though I, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it. 
so that, there's our reason, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears in me. What does Paul want? Paul wants you to assess how godly he is by what you see in his life and by what he says. It's the exact same that he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this for by doing so you will save yourself and your hearers. People are seeing his progress. People are hearing his teaching. And that's what the Apostle Paul cares about. He doesn't want to boast in his spiritual experience. So Faith Family, just imagine how your life would change, how this church would change, if your work tomorrow would change. If you woke up tomorrow and everyone you met, not, not a single exception, everyone you met wanted no one to think of them more highly than they ought. What would, you look like, what would your life look like tomorrow if every person you met didn't want anyone else to think more highly of them than they ought? I think the Facebook updates would zero out. No more pictures of your favorite meal, your awesome house renovations, your amazing vacation, your leisure yesterday on the lake. I might be jealous of that, okay? But, you know, I mean, none of that would happen because it was like, I don't want you to think more highly of me than you ought. I think tweets would stop chirping. We would just have crickets. The lunchroom tables for schools and, and workplace would be a lot quieter. People, Paul did not want people to think of him better than what he says or he does. And here's the kicker. He doesn't want people to think of him more highly, even when he's being attacked. Even when he's being attacked. When you get attacked, what do you do? Boy, let, 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 let's start talking. I want you to think rightly. You're, you're calling in a question, me? Let's go for it. And so I guess the question here is, he didn't want people to glory in him, but glory in God. So faith family, where are you tempted to boast? Where are you tempted to boast? The principles you live by? The kids you have? The degrees you've earned? The good deal you got, the money you saved. I mean, is that not a favorite one to boast in? I got such a deal on this. I mean, we just have to, we, we, can't, we can't have something nice without saying we got a deal. It's just part of who we are. We just want to boast even in saving money. The job we secured, the leisure and comfort that we can afford. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the Bible says there is no enemy so strong and so sinister as your pride. If you're not a Christian, the biggest problem is you. It's your pride. What you boast in actually will keep you from trusting in God. Because you think that you're self-sufficient. And so we could all pray as a church. Oh God, kill my pride before I kill others with it. Would you pray that this week? Wake up this morning, God, kill my pride before I kill others with it. Would that change home? Would that change this church? Would that change your work environment? Would that change how you witness? God, kill my pride before I kill others with it. God answers that prayer. He does so by giving. It didn't just happen. God gave the Apostle Paul a thorn in the flesh. Look at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, 
because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. It is one of God's severe mercies to afflict you so that you will not be ruined by your pride. Notice three things about the thorn in the flesh. Three things about the thorn in the flesh. First, we don't know what it was. You can email me this week. That'll be fun. Talk to me afterwards. Great. But we don't know. And I think there's a benefit in not knowing because I think we can all put something in there and say, hey, we all have a thorn in the flesh. We can identify in some way. Second, this thorn in the flesh had a demonic intent. It was sent to him to torment him. But the third thing was it was also from God and it had a divine intent. God wanted to humble Paul so he, God, puts the father of all pride to work to deliver the Apostle Paul from pride. That is not amazing. God is using Satan to defeat Satan's purpose. Satan wants to promote pride, and God is using Satan to prevent pride in Paul. Satan is God's Satan. So as you think about your thorn in the flesh, know that there can be a physical cause. Right? There's a physical suffering. Maybe a doctor could diagnose it. There can be a physical cause in your life. There can also be a demonic opposition to it. And yet there can still be, in the same verse, a good, sovereign God who stands behind it all. So those of you that are, again, struggling with human responsibility and God's sovereignty, here you have it in all in one verse. There's a physical ailment, a demonic intent, and a God intent all in one verse. This thorn in the flesh can be diagnosed by humans, seem to have a demonic background to it, but also God who gave it to them. So faith family, can you look at your thorn in the flesh and say, there's a message from Satan in this. But can you also look at the thorn in your flesh and say, there's a message from God in this. Right? Your thorn in the flesh is not just a work of Satan to sabotage you. It is also a work of God to save you. A divine thorn was needed in the Apostle Paul's life so that the Apostle Paul would not become conceited. So that just means for you, there can be something in your life that is not good, that does not feel good, and yet God is still working for your good. And that's when Paul begins to switch from the third person to the first person. Look at verse 8. He goes from just talking about himself to now saying, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this so that it should leave me. Paul learned something in this affliction. You want to know what he learned? Paul learned to pray in proportion to his pain. Three times I pleaded for this. Finally, faith family, have you ever finally prayed according to the proportion of your pain? It might just mean that you still think you're self-sufficient. I'm going to be honest. When I get parenting problems, you know what Lord and I do? We begin to think, what haven't we taught? 
Could we read another book and teach our kids something? You know what we need is longer Bible. We're up at 10 hours a day in the Owens household for Bible teaching. Because you know what we think our go-to is? We need to teach better. And so in proportion to the pain of parenting, has it created in me the pleading with the Lord to do something? Or do I still think I'm sufficient to mold and shape these kids? Have you learned finally, have you finally learned to pray in proportion to your pain? I think it's the grace of God that Paul learns that three times it feels like he's praying like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, take this from me. Which means this. There's so much more you can learn from the thorns in life than the third heaven. There's more you're going to learn from thorns in the flesh than the third heaven. Paul learned spiritual intimacy through spiritual affliction. He got cast onto the breast of Christ because he had to plead. What would that prayer sound like? I think it could sound like this. Lord, you're sending me to plant churches to the Gentiles. It would be more efficient if I didn't have to have this thorn in the flesh. Lord, after all I have suffered to plant churches in Gentile lands to reach my Jewish brothers, Lord, do I really need to go through this too? That's pleading three times. It's earnest trusting. And I just want to encourage you, it is not wrong to ask God to remove your pain or your problems in your life. The Apostle Paul prays for God to remove it. The Apostle Paul thought that his thorn in the flesh should go, but Jesus said no. Why? Why would Jesus hamper his ministry? Couldn't he get more done? Look at verses 9 and 10. But, but, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. There's a huge transition from Paul pleading to Jesus answering, and we see it that in that word, but, it's a clue, and it's prompting you to say, what would make Paul now say in verse 9, the end of it, therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul goes from praying, remove this, to let this remain. Paul goes from praying, to like, amen. Like, let it be, Lord. What would allow such a transition from verse 8? To his therefore, I will boast. He doesn't want to boast in heavenly visions. He, he barely wants to do that. But now he says, no, I'm going to boast about my weakness. What allows him to do that is because he has learned that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul learns that his weakness is a prerequisite for God's divine strength. So here's our fourth point. We're going to wrap it up with this. Glory in your weakness to display in yourself the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory in your weakness to display in yourself the Lord Jesus Christ. The order matters when it comes to human weakness and power. One has to come before the other. right? In order to have divine power, God has to say you first must see yourself as weak. The only way that God can display his power, that your very life can be a showcase of God's power, is if first you are weak. And catch this. That means God often doesn't change your circumstance. It means that he often just changes you. 
Man, we would love God's power to be seen in taking away the thorn of the flesh. Of course it's how we want it to be done. Lord, use your great power and show the world that you can take away this messenger of Satan in my life. That would be an amazing way, Lord, for you to get glory. Oh, God, the power that you can show by me escaping suffering as opposed to enduring suffering. Oh, I pick escaping suffering every time. But the power of God is often seen most clearly in the power of a changed life than the power of a changed circumstance, right? There's more for you to have of Jesus in suffering than any other time. He says, my grace, Christ is giving Paul himself, my power, my grace, I'm giving it to you. And so Paul says in verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content. I have learned to be, the word there is well-pleased. I have learned to be well-pleased with the way God wants to display his power. That's really important. Have you learned to be pleased with the way God wants to display his power in your life? For the sake of Christ, I have learned to be well pleased with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. That's the way that Paul learned to be content. The way that God wants to make his power seen. So I think back to Acts chapter 9 when Paul gets saved. You remember his testimony? God comes to the Apostle Paul and says about Paul, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul gets saved and God says, Go to him, and he's going to be the very one that my name's going to be great. That, that, that's the end. And he's going to make my name great before kings. Oh, yeah, Lord, I want that. I'm going to make your name great before Jews. Oh, yeah, Lord, I want that. Your name is going to be great before Gentiles. Amen, Lord. Yes. I'm all in. Let, let's, you want to use me to make your name great? There? Sure. I'm signing up right here. God goes on at 916. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Oh, that, that's the way you want to do this? You're going to get me before kings by having me, oh, go there as a prisoner. You're going to make your name look great before Jews by having me beat with lashes save one. A third of them on the front of my chest. Two-thirds of them on the back. That's how you're going to make your name look great? All right. I love being a weak jar of clay so that your power may rest on me. Same word there, rest on me, as the word tabernacled. Jesus Christ in John 1.14, right? Christ came and he tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. How do you want Christ to pitch his tent over your life? God's power is going to rest on me when I'm weak. Let me just give you three quick words of application, then we'll be done. Paul was a weak messenger. Are you following his example? He was modest about his third heaven experience. Instead, he wants to boast all the more gladly of his weakness. We want the world to know that God is great, not us. So here it is. Is that what your faith family thinks about you? <coughs> Is that what your personal family thinks about you? Is that what your coworkers think about you? Teens, is that what your peers think about you? You were made to boast. But in Christ, you are finally now rescued to boast about the right thing. Speaking, declaring, 
praising how true God is, how good God is, how faithful God is, how reliable God is, how wonderfully generous this God is. Who do you boast about? Yourself or God? Just imagine just this week, if all the things you said about yourself were written down, all the things you thought about yourself were written down, and then beside that, all the things that you said about God was written down. And they were read out loud. Would we walk away thinking that person boasts in Christ? Are you a weak messenger that boasts in the Lord? Second application, a weak message. Paul was a weak messenger with a weak message. When Paul comes to preach to Corinth originally, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And um, <clears throat> him crucified. It's, it's a weak message. The Jews consider it a stumbling block. The Greeks consider it folly. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than man. Here we are, we proclaim with just words the weakest message ever. That when Christ was at his most weak, on the cross, dying, he was actually the most strong, conquering sin. And we are not ashamed of that gospel. And so we call you to repent and believe. A weak message. Finally, a weak membership weak messenger, a weak message, a weak membership. How are you displaying Christ's strength in bearing those thorns in your weakness? <clears throat> How are you displaying Christ's strength through your thorns? If you just want to see that lived out, just look around. Look at our faith family. Like watch each other's lives. I think one thing that you can really see is just listen to our prayers. Our prayers, if you were to actually listen to them, you're going to hear laments, Right? What we think God is keeping from us. Oh Lord, we want health for Ernie Kilman. Don't, don't keep that from him. But you're also going to hear in our prayers, prayers of praise. That God is keeping us from abandoning him. And so we praise you that Tom Gagne was thrown on your breast through his sickness. So that he would not wander from you through his trial. But the word of God became more rich to him. And I think Tom Gagne could give a testimony later today that would say, I would choose going back because God's word became more rich. You're going to hear those prayers. The Owens family, I think you can hear, right? Would God take Hudson's belly and his issues, right? Would you, would you take that from him just so he could eat whatever he wants? But then we see God, he, he learns self-control. He learns that he can't just go after everything. He's learned, our family has learned not to complain about food. It's a big deal in America. All the options we have. Hey, Lord, I'm not. Thank you for that. It takes time, right? So in closing, in prayer, we spend time in prayer longer than, than maybe you want. But it's to admit our weakness so that we can experience God's strength. I love Cademan Call's song. It's old school. Anybody even know Cademan Call anymore? Raise your hand if you're older than 40. Thank you. All right. This crowd over here, Cademan's Call, look it up, Google it, all right? <laughs> uh, Josh Newhook, Cademan's Call? No. <sighs> Music guy. 
Faith, Cadman's Call? Not so much. <laughs> okay, dating myself. Cadman's Call wrote a song called Jars of Clay. And in it, they said this. My ability won't get me very far, but my fragility is a testimony of who you are. My ability won't get me very far, but my fragility is a testimony of who you are. Faith, family, don't just do easy things. Like, you look at the church, like, you know, what can you serve in the church? Like, oh, I have the competency and the skill to do that. No. There isn't a single elder that goes, I am, yes, I am competent to be an elder. <laughs> there isn't a single musician up here that says, I am confident to lead without missing a note. Right? Second service praise team, like the Owens family, <laughs> we were not competent to play. But in our fragility, God's ability, so you can see him, not us. All of those things that we aren't, those things that we can't do, those things that we don't have, God makes himself faithful by being, doing, and giving. Let's pray.